So imagine this. It's the first day of a convention, let's say Anime Expo. Last night you were up late making notes on all the workshops and events you want to attend and double checking where your favorite artists are this year in Artist Alley. You've been up since dawn getting your Legend of Zelda cosplay perfect, doing last minute alterations to your outfit, having your friend help you get laced in, putting on your makeup, getting your wig styled just right. So after grabbing a coffee and a protein bar for breakfast, you and your friends leave your hotel to join the throng of other people walking towards the convention center. You and your friends booked your room early, so you managed to get a hotel room only about a quarter of a mile away. Not too bad of a walk. And you can spot who the other con attendees are instantly. Some people are in elaborate cosplay just like you. There are lots of people with brightly colored hair wearing nerdy t-shirts, carrying poster tubes and backpacks and water bottles. The city feels like it's been taken over by 30,000 nerds in otaku, and the feeling of excitement and festivity is thick in the air. You've been waiting for this moment all year, and now it's finally here. So for the sake of the story, let's say that this is a dream world, and you don't need to wait in line for hours to get in on day one. There are no bag checks, and you already have your attendee badge. You get to just walk in the front door as soon as it opens. Not very realistic, but just stick with me here. So you're approaching the front entrance, and the crowds are milling about waiting for the doors to open. Cosplayers are posing for photo ops, and friends who haven't seen each other in a year are giving each other huge hugs. The food trucks are already setting up in the parking lot across the way. Everyone is in high spirits, smiling and laughing. But then you notice them, the street evangelists. They're not smiling or laughing. They look angry and disapproving, and they're holding up signs that say things like, Nerds go to hell, and the blood of Jesus cleanses sin, or repent, turn to Jesus, or burn. Some of them have megaphones or are playing recordings of scripture passages on repeat. Maybe some of them are handing out tracts to their captive audience. Some of them refuse to engage passerbys at all and simply stand there stoically, letting their sign do the talking for them. You try your best to ignore them, but now you're a little bit less excited and a little bit more annoyed. What is wrong with these people anyway? If their god is really into all this judgment and condemnation stuff, you want nothing to do with him. So if you've ever been to an anime convention or a Comic-Con, you know that this isn't just a disappointing fiction. This is a story I've seen played out time and time again in front of my eyes, and it's a story that pretty much any convention goer can relate to. Other than the no line bit, of course. Conventions are full of lines. And they're full of people standing outside who don't care one little bit about your favorite anime, or your favorite video game character, or the role-playing scenario that you've been working on tirelessly in your spare time. They do want you to know Jesus, or so they say. So I've been doing this nerd ministry thing for about seven years now, and I have yet to meet anyone who says that they met Jesus because someone yelled at them from a street corner and said they were going to burn in hell unless they repented from their video game playing ways. But what I have met are plenty of people whose lives have been changed because they met loving Christians who played games with them when they were alone, helped them when they were lost, stopped to talk to them when it was clear they were having a panic attack, or simply stopped to explain a rulebook to them. So here at Love Thy Nerd, we love attending conventions and ministering to people that we find there. But for most of 2020, that kind of ministry became just a bit more difficult because for most of the year, we were all stuck in our houses. Stay-at-home orders and quarantines and endless Zoom meetings became our new reality. Travel plans were halted, conventions canceled, birthday parties turned into drive-by birthday parades, 
and sitting around a table with your friends, a pizza, and some board games became a thing of the past. Even the hardcore introverts amongst us started to tire of it. But in the midst of all this, Love Thy Nerd partnered with two other organizations to put together a resource package we called Developing Digital Disciples. We wanted to serve churches who were looking for ways to disciple students when youth groups couldn't gather in person. Students were experiencing Zoom fatigue just as much as the rest of us, if not more so. So we thought, why not give churches a vision for an additional tool they can use, one that their students are already using on their own. And that tool was online gaming. So in our resource, we outlined four different phases of discipleship and explained them in the context of playing games online with students. But these phases are applicable to more than just youth ministry. They can be used as a framework for relational ministry as a whole. So we decided to focus each of this year's LTN Con keynotes on one of these four phases. So today I'm going to talk with you about the first of these phases, finding affinity. So affinity is one of those words that we use, but maybe aren't entirely clear on what it means. So let me start with a definition. The Merriam-Webster Dictionary actually has three related definitions for affinity. First, affinity is a feeling of closeness and understanding that someone shares with another person because of their similar qualities, ideas, or interests. For instance, one of my best friends and I have affinity with one another because of a shared love for the YouTube personality and chef Claire Savitz. We share an affinity because of our common interest in delicious baked goods and delightful personalities. Secondly, affinity is a liking for or an attraction to some thing. For instance, I have an affinity for antique stores and flea markets that I learned from my parents. You just never know what kind of treasures you're going to find, and I love that feeling of adventure and exploration. It's the closest that I'll ever get to being Indiana Jones. And thirdly, affinity is a likeness based on shared qualities that makes people or things suited to one another. For instance, mermaids have a natural affinity for water. Peanut butter and jelly share a natural affinity for each other. And so do Cheetos and Mountain Dew, thanks to the power of marketing. So much so that you can apparently now get flame and hot Mountain Dew. So, why does affinity matter? These definitions all approach the word slightly differently, but what they share in common is this idea of closeness and commonality. In order for us to say that things or people share affinity, they need to have something in common that brings them closer together. I don't think that it's a big leap to see how this word relates to ministry. If we're trying to reach people with the love of Jesus, we're going to be much more effective in our efforts if we do so from a place of common ground. Having something in common with the person you're interacting with builds trust, breaks down barriers, and creates opportunities in a way that's much more difficult to achieve if you're starting from zero. So what could this look like in the context of nerd ministry? At Love Thy Nerd, we often talk about the concept of staying in your wheelhouse. If you've ever been on an outreach trip with us, you've probably heard us say this at least a dozen times. What we mean by it is that it'll be much easier to love people well if you're sharing something you both enjoy. If you're passionate about a particular game, for instance, you're probably going to be a much more effective witness by playing that game with people than you will playing a game that you hate. If you love photography, you can connect with cosplayers by offering photo shoot sessions with them. If you're a high energy person who loves meeting new people, you might be a great fit for wandering the expo hall, chatting with game designers and artists and publishers. And if you really love teaching games, your sweet spot might be sitting in the free play area, arranging learn to play sessions, or working with a company to run demos of their games. So this is one way of finding affinity, discovering the areas of nerd culture you love and what your talents and gifts are, and then finding ways to serve people in those specific areas. 
But there's a second way to find affinity that we focused on in developing digital disciples, and it involves exercising curiosity about other people's passions that you don't necessarily know anything about. After all, you might be brand new to nerd culture. You might be looking for ways to minister to youth or congregants who have totally different interests than you. Or you might just be interested in exploring an area that you know nothing about or next to nothing about, but find fascinating. For me, one of those areas is comic books. I mean, obviously now what the comic book is, I've even read a few. And I've picked up a bit of the terminology over the years. Bags and boards, pull lists, imprints. But if you asked me to tell you anything else about comics, I wouldn't even try to teach you. I'd just point you in the direction of our resident comics nerds pull list podcast, or send you to your local comic book store to ask the friendly nerds and employees there. But just because I don't know much about comics, that doesn't mean I can't love comic book nerds. What it does mean is that if I want to love them well in the context of their nerdy interests, I need to be curious. I need to ask a lot of questions and really listen to the answers. I need to demonstrate that I care about their passions and them, and that I want to learn more, not with an agenda, not holding on to preconceived biases, but ideally with an attitude of humility and beginner's mind, setting aside everything I think I know and all my opinions, being a student, not just a teacher. So I want to give three examples of what finding affinity looks like in real life ministry. All three of these examples also happen to be personal heroes of mine, men who I hope to emulate in my own life. The first one is a man you've probably heard of if you've spent any time at all in a church or reading the Bible. His name is Paul, and he's actually a pretty interesting example of what finding affinity looks like in practice. By all accounts, Paul doesn't make much sense to have been one of the most important leaders of the early church. He was a former persecutor and a murderer of Christians, a Jew and a Pharisee to boot, one of the Jewish sects that opposed Jesus the most prominently during his life and set the plans in motion to have him killed. Before encountering Jesus on the road to Damascus, I'm not sure anyone could have imagined the path that Paul's life would take. But after meeting Jesus, his path did take a complete 180, and he devoted the rest of his life to spreading the gospel of Jesus, not just to other Jews, but to Gentiles. Seeing as he had been a Pharisee up until this point in his life, this would seem to contradict my principle of affinity. Jews and Gentiles had completely different customs, lifestyles, faiths, understanding of the Hebrew scriptures, and they didn't really interact with one another if they could help it at all. Paul seemingly had nothing in common with the people he was preaching to. He should have been the last choice to preach to the Gentiles. But Paul says that he considered his former life as a Pharisee to be worthless in light of his new identity as a follower of Christ. And he understood that through Christ, God's blessing was no longer just reserved for Jews like him. Christ had established a new kingdom where there was neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male or female. All were now one in Jesus Christ. Paul himself commented on how he adapted to the culture wherever he found himself. In his first letter to the Corinthians, he said, Though I am free and belong to no one, I may have made myself a slave to everyone, to win as many as possible. To the Jews I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law, but am under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I became weak, to win the weak. I have become all things to all people, so that by all possible means I might save some. Throughout Paul's missionary journeys, you can see examples of him paying attention to the culture where he was and acknowledging it. 
For instance, when he was in Athens, he quoted Roman poetry in his preaching. When he was preaching to Jewish leaders, he brought up his education and background as a Pharisee to build rapport with them. He took cues from the culture around him, and he spoke intelligently on it. In other words, he did his research, and just like Jesus, he met people where they were at. My second example is another man you might be familiar with, by the name of the Reverend Fred McFeely Rogers, better known as Mr. Rogers, the host of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. What you may not know about Mr. Rogers, at least I didn't know this until about three years ago, is that he was actually an ordained minister in the Presbyterian Church. But instead of going into ministry as a pastor, he used his affinity for early childhood development and puppetry to work in children's television for over 50 years, including the 33 years that Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood was on the air. Mr. Rogers himself was an only child until about 11 and had a difficult childhood. He was lonely, shy, introverted, bullied for his weight, and called Fat Freddy, and suffered from bouts of asthma that frequently caused him to be homebound. He did overcome at least some of that shyness in high school, but it would seem that his childhood experiences had a lasting experience, lasting impact on him, that is. In an interview, he said that when he was a senior in college, he had his first encounter with television, and he said he became appalled by what were labeled children's programs. Pies in faces and slapstick. He says, that's when I decided to go into this field. Children deserve better. Children need better. So hosting a popular children's television program was an unusual choice for a Presbyterian minister, especially a show that by all appearances had nothing to do with preaching the gospel. But if you look at the messages that Mr. Rogers shared with his congregation of children, messages of compassion, love, peace, inclusion, emotional wellness, and kindness to others, it's clear that Jesus was his guide the whole time, and his message reached children and families all across the country for 33 years, an impressive amount of time for a children's program rivaled only by the likes of Sesame Street. And my third example is a man who I was introduced to much more recently, and one that many of you might not even know yet. His name is Ted Lasso, and he's the main character in a sitcom of the same name. Ted is a goofy, lovable college football coach from Kansas, who's hired to coach a British professional soccer team, despite knowing absolutely nothing about the sport of soccer. He knows so little that during his first press conference, he tells a crowd of skeptical reporters that they are going to play hard all four quarters. And for those of you who are sports illiterate like me, soccer is played in two halves, as the reporters are also quick to point out to him. But Ted is unwaveringly optimistic, and he's undeterred by all the haters, of which there are many. Now, this might all sound a bit cliche, the overused fish-out-of-water troupe, the lovable buffoon main character, and I was skeptical at first too. But what made me fall in love, and the reason that Ted is now one of my personal heroes, is that for him coaching isn't about making money, or appeasing the fans or shareholders, or adding trophies to a case. In one episode, Ted is being shadowed by a reporter who's doing a profile on him. Over dinner, Ted asks the reporter, Trent Krim of The Independent, what it is that Trent loves. When Trent just stares at him, Ted asks, is it writing? To which Trent agrees. Then said says the following. Me, I love coaching. Now I'm going to say this again, just so you didn't think it was a mistake the first time I said it to you. For me, success is not about the wins and losses. It's about helping these young fellows be the best versions of themselves, on and off the field. And it ain't always easy, Trent, but neither has grown up with us, I wouldn't believe it in you.
To me, this is the core of finding affinity. It's not necessarily about sharing a common interest in a subject both people know inside and out, although it absolutely can be. At its core, it's about loving people by learning to love what they love, not just to have fun times together, but so that you can hopefully learn from each other. Because make no doubt about it, Ted gets as much inspiration and encouragement from the people around him as he hands out. Ted is humble about everything that he doesn't know about soccer, and he learns leans heavily on the people around him to learn what he needs to know. His assistant coach, the team's kit man, the team's players, his star player's girlfriend. What he doesn't know about soccer, though, he makes up for with his knowledge about coaching, both on and off the fields, as he says. And over the course of the show, you see people warming to him, lives transformed, and even a few wins for his team. So I know Ted isn't a minister in the traditional sense. The show doesn't have any explicitly faith-based message, and I'm sure that the creators didn't intend it to. But I find myself agreeing with one writer who wrote in an article for the National Catholic Reporter that it may very well be the most unwittingly Christian program on air today. Our next speaker, Drew Dixon, will go a bit more into how to use the affinity you find to create proximity and grow relationships. But finding that point of common ground is the first step. So let me offer a few specific thoughts on how you go about doing that. Number one, be curious, ask lots of questions. Don't be afraid to admit what you don't know. Nerds love talking about the things we're interested in. If you show genuine interest in our hobbies, we will be more than happy to share. Probably way more than you're prepared for, so brace yourself. And remember that you're not doing this as some sort of bait-and-switch ministry strategy. I'm to open up to you and trust you so that you can find the right time to quote-unquote share the gospel with them. Nerds can sense a fake from a million miles away. We're used to people patronizing us and merely tolerating our obsessions. You hopefully didn't form a relationship with your best friend so that you could fix their life. So, there you go. Don't do it with these people. <laughs> One of our core values at LTN is that people aren't projects. They're people, each of them precious and created in the image of God. So treat them that way. So, number one, ask questions, be curious. Number two, slow down and take your time. Before you make plans for how you're going to do ministry, stop to ask yourself what the actual felt needs are that you're trying to address. And they need to know Jesus doesn't count as an answer here, or at least not the only answer. During his earthly ministry, Jesus had access to all wisdom, but he would still often ask those he was serving, what is it that you want? Doing this creates an environment that allows for understanding and builds a platform on which mutual trust can be built. In Jesus' case, he already knew the answers, but in your case, you should assume that you don't. There are lots of layers to subcultures and you can't assume that you understand everything that drives them just by observing from the outside. You need to spend time getting to know people and their needs through observation and listening and engaging in conversation. Learn about what brings people joy and excitement and satisfaction, and also about what brings them pain and hopelessness and fear. Learn why this culture, this hobby is so attractive to them. At the intersection of those places of pain and joy, that's where you'll find your ministry. And number three, have fun. One of the great joys in doing ministry in this area is that a lot of the time, it doesn't feel like work. We literally get to minister to people by playing games with them or talking about comics, or watching anime together, or whatever it is that you're into. Don't lose sight of how unbelievably cool that is. I mean, Jesus ministered to people around him by sharing meals and even going to a few parties. Don't misunderstand me. There's real work to be done here. 
It won't always be fun and games. But if it's never fun and games, then something probably needs to change. You probably need to re-examine whether you've actually found affinity or if you're just going through the motions. And as a sidebar to all this, here's a warning. Don't confuse finding affinity with creating a culture of exclusion. The Bible tells us that the kingdom of God is a kingdom of diversity and inclusion, with representatives from every nation, tribe, people, and language. Our goal shouldn't be to create isolated pockets of affinity groups and just stick with the people that like the things we like. Quite the opposite. It should be to build bridges of understanding. In the kingdom of God, there's no hostility between the people who prefer to watch anime subbed or dubbed, and the elderly lady who always sits in the front row and loves bingo can have spirited discussions with the 20-somethings who are always a little bit late on Sunday mornings because he was up late the night before streaming Call of Duty. So there you have it, the first phase of discipleship and nerd ministry. In closing, I'll leave you with a few motivational quotes from a few of my affinity-finding heroes. The first is from Paul in Philippians 2, 5 through 11. Think of yourselves the way Christ Jesus thought of himself. He had equal status with God, but didn't think so much of himself that he had to cling to the advantages of that status no matter what. Not at all. When the time came, he set aside the privileges of deity and took on the status of a slave, became human. Having become human, he stayed human. It was an incredibly humbling process. He didn't claim special privileges. Instead, he lived a selfless, obedient life, and then died a selfless, obedient death. That was from the Message Translation. The next two quotes are from Fred Rogers. If we can somehow rid ourselves of illusions, he said, the illusion that we are greater or lesser than we are, the illusion that we're going to save the world, there are a lot of illusions that people walk around with. I would love to be present in every moment that I have. And then, as human beings, our job in life is to help people realize how rare and valuable each one of us really is, and that each of us has something that no one else has, or ever will have, something inside that is unique to all time. It is our job to encourage each other to discover that uniqueness and to provide ways of developing its expression. And the last, almost done here, is from the man himself, Ted Lasso. Taking on a challenge is a lot like riding a horse. If you're comfortable while you're doing it, you're probably doing it wrong. Thank you, and enjoy the rest of LTNCon. Con.